This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good evening, GYC. Let me just say that it is a privilege and an honor to be here with you tonight. And I can tell you that to see an army of young people come together to be trained and to be uh, educated, to uplift one another for the cause of Jesus Christ really thrills my heart. In fact, I'm humbled even to be here because there are a lot of places young people could be this weekend, amen? There are a lot of people trying to figure out where they're going to party this weekend. But I praise God that we could fill a room so large that I really can't see the back of it. And I praise God that God's church still has young people who are very serious about finishing the work. So let's just say amen, amen. and let's give the Lord a hand praise. Let's just tell God that we love him because God is good. Let me tell you something. We could, we could, we could go on all night about this, but I work in the field of public health and I see young people all the time who are in dire straits. And I've prayed with many of them many times and asked them to, you know, make wise decisions or to encourage them to do good things. So I'm glad to know that I can go back and say, look, I've seen what God can do for young people. And I saw it at GYC. Somebody ought to say amen. If you don't mind, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, the second chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And I'm going to read the first four verses from the second chapter of the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The scripture says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses... The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Verse 3 says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Our message this evening is entitled, The Good Soldier. The Good Soldier. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to go into your word. I ask, Father God, right now that you make me just a rusty old, sorry old nail, Lord. But Lord, I ask that you hammer that nail into a wall. And then upon that nail, I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would hang a portrait of yourself so that tonight Eric Walsh is not seen or heard. But Father God, I ask that we would hear a message from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen. The city of Rome was on fire. In fact, three-fourths of the city wound up burning. It started in July of AD 64 
on the night between the 18th and the 19th. It was said to have started at the southeastern end of the Circus Maximus where flammable goods were being sold. And once the fire caught in the ancient Rome, it, it was difficult to stop the fire because the way that the city was built, the, the homes were connected. But not only were the homes connected, they were connected and the walls of those connected homes were flammable. So once the city began to burn, a city of over two million people, the city began to burn in rapid succession. The fire burned for six days in Rome. Six long, difficult days. To die down and then burn again for three more days. Three great ancient historians, Cassius Dio, Suetonius and Tacitus all state that it was Nero who started the fire. These historians also state that he played the lyre and he sang from the palace walls as the city burned. There are those who argue that in fact what Nero really wanted was an opportunity to clear out sections of the city so that he could build a larger palace. Something that he ultimately does after the fire is quelched by the battalions of firemen building a large palace and a over 130 foot or 30 meter high a statue of himself in gold. Nero was a sick man and history records that not only is he guilty of killing his mother and of killing his second wife, but Nero was the first of the pagan emperors to begin to torture the Christians. And when the fire was burning, one of the things that happened is that the citizens of Rome began to believe that somehow Nero was guilty of the fire. Nero was so upset at, at the idea that he was being indicted that he decided to turn his attention and the attentions of the citizens of Rome off of himself and onto another group of people. In fact, he arrested and tortured a few Christians, and those Christians implicated other Christians, and so on until the young Christian religion, newer to Rome than most other religions, which was a, a religion popular among the poor and the destitute, that religion, if you belong to it, people were being gathered up and collected and tortured. In fact, Tacitus, and Tacitus is a very important ancient historian. There was a time when it was argued that there was no evidence of Jesus Christ outside of the scripture. But Tacitus writes, and I want you to hear this, Tacitus writes, therefore, speaking of, of Nero, he says, therefore, to, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, he, the emperor Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who are generally hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, the founder of the Christian religion, they say, he says, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out yet again, not only through, G through Judea, where the mischief originated, 
but through the city of Rome also, where all horrible and disgraceful things flow. Tacitus makes it clear in his writings, he was a boy when the city burned. And he speaks negatively of Christianity, of course, because to speak positively of Christianity would have meant that he might have found himself being tortured. But Tacitus anchors a few things in history. He anchors in history the fact that not only did Jesus exist, but Jesus was put to death by Pontius Pilate. And I submit to you that the other ancient historian that does this, Josephus, are both important because even Josephus says that Jesus was the Messiah, being that he was a Jewish historian. So I submit to you that out of this this fire comes the torture of the Christians, but it also cements Christianity in pagan Rome as a religion. How horrific was the torture of the Christians? As this, after the city burned, it was so horrific because they would take Christians and, and they would put them up on stakes. They would take uh, animal skins fleshly ripped from off of the bodies of animals and wrap the Christians up in the animal skins and then release upon the Christians hungry uh, dogs. So terrible was Nero who wanted desperately to be a great charioteer. That Nero would take the Christians and sometimes he would put them on poles and he would light them on fire. And at night, Nero would practice his chariot racing as he bobbed and weaved in between the human torches that were Christians. But no matter what they did, GYC, no matter how tortured the Christians were, One of the powerful things that happens is the Christian church only gains strength. In fact, Tacitus says something profound. He says that as the average citizens see what's happening, many of them begin to feel sorry for the Christians. And as Christians sing hymns, even as they are uh, set ablaze, The last sounds uttered out of their parched mouths are songs of praise to God. Can you imagine being a spectator and watching as one of these Christians dies and no matter how fierce the power of the Roman Empire is upon the group, no matter how pointed and directed the attack, no matter how hateful and slanderous the words, yet this group of Christians only continue to praise the living God. Nero realized that if he was going to do away with Christianity, he had to do away with its leadership. So for the second time, he goes and he arrests a very small, feeble, older gentleman by the name of Paul. And Paul is drug in and thrown into a dungeon and left there to suffer. Nero trying to make an example of him, trying to squash out this religion, who after a while, they no longer said that their crime was was burning down the city, but eventually 
The crime leaves being simply burning down the city. And, and Tacitus puts it like this. He says, eventually, their crime is the hating of the human race. Let me warn you, young people, that if you're going to be a Christian, the enemy is going to tell lies on you. The enemy is going to try to galvanize the world against us. You're going to be seen as barbaric, antiquated, out of touch, out of date. You're slow. You're, you're not that smart, actually. In fact, these pernicious lies have begun and a very sophisticated trap has already been sprung on the Christian world. And in fact, much of Christendom doesn't realize this trap has been sprung. When I look at individuals like Sarah Palin or the, 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 the lady here in Delaware, just close by, who recently ran for the Senate seat in the United States, the lady who said she wasn't a witch, you notice that what they do is when Sarah Palin is asked and, 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 and uh, O'Donnell are asked if they believe in evolution or creationism, when these questions are posed to them, there are commentators and pundits that now say, listen, I, I remember hearing uh, um, uh, Ariana Huffington say about Sarah Palin, she is not qualified to be the president of the United States because she believes in a six-day creation. Now, many would argue there are a lot of reasons Sarah Palin may not have been qualified to be the president of the United States. But I hope you get the trap that's being set. If you can combine certain elements with Christianity and make anyone who is a Bible-believing Christian seem as if they are at odds with science and progress, do you see that the trap is being set? Paul is arrested for the second time. While he's in the dungeon, he is asked what it is that he would want. At the end of the book of 2 Timothy, he says he wants his cloak, he wants his scrolls, he would want something to write with. And, and Paul begins to write the book of 2 Timothy. Let me give you an overview of the next three nights. We're going to go through the book of 2 Timothy in three parts. We're going to look at the major players out of the book of 2 Timothy. One, of course, the Apostle Paul himself. Second, of course, we're going to look at Timothy. But third, we will also look at Nero the Emperor and the Roman Empire. We'll look at Paul from a different angle tomorrow night. We'll look at Paul as a prophet. We'll look at the comparison that Ellen White and many great historians draw between Nero himself and Paul the Apostle. Over the next three nights, we'll go deep into this book, looking not only at what is in Scripture, but trying to build a historical context, because I believe this book was written for three separate groups of people. One, the book was written for Timothy himself, obviously. Paul wanted to make sure that he left with Timothy final words of importance so that Timothy would be armed to deal with what he was going to have to face as Timothy advanced to becoming a bishop. Secondly, of course, this book was written for us. In fact, if I could name the message something else, I would name it a letter to the last generation. 
Paul is truly warning those of us who would be alive at the end of time. He's warning us, preparing us, and instructing us in how to survive the difficult days that the Christians will have to once again survive. Who better to write that roadmap for the end of the world than the apostle who bore the brunt of pagan Rome's torture? But finally, and maybe most interestingly in some ways, this letter was also written to the Roman Empire itself. In fact, on Saturday night, I'll show you that I believe that Paul hoped that Nero himself would read this letter. But first, let's deal with Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The scripture says that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In the third verse of the book, Paul is in a dungeon. He's, he's probably hungry. He's probably been beaten. But, but look at how just three verses in, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve. Let me submit to you that torture didn't sway Paul's allegiance to God. His being hungry, his being alone, his being destitute. Paul knew that even in the worst of situations, he must thank the living God. Let me tell you something. Some of us are fair-weather Christians. We're happy to serve God when everything is going well. But when we're faced with adversity, there are a lot of Christians who quickly begin to backtrack and question God. Oh, if we had the faith of Paul. Instead of questioning God, we would view every difficult situation we find ourselves in as an opportunity. As an opportunity to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. In fact, he says something profound in verse 5 as he introduces this young man, Timothy. He says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. You see, Timothy was an interesting young man. His father was a Greek. His mother Eunice, as mentioned in chapter 5, was probably a Jewess. It's clear from the book of 2 Timothy that Timothy was well-trained in the Scripture. In fact, one of the things I like to tell young people based on that verse of Scripture is that many of us who have been raised in the church, like Timothy who was raised to know God, have been raised with a legacy of faith. We have been raised with a legacy of faith. And probably one of the most disheartening things that I see in the church is when young people take that legacy of faith and just throw it away. All of the advantages of being sent to Christian Adventist schools, growing up in homes where alcohol wasn't allowed, 
hearing the Word of God preached from week to week in churches. And when they come of age, had friends like that growing up who would every week at church at 13 and 14 years of age would remind us, man, when I turn 18, brother, I'm out of here. I'm escaping this place. They thought of the church as a jail. And I praise God that I've lived long enough to see many of them that ran out of the church come running back in. They found out that real freedom isn't in the world, isn't in drugs and, and illicit sexual affairs. It's, it's not in chasing the almighty dollar, but, but real freedom comes when you can turn over your life to Jesus Christ. Somebody ought to say amen. But some of us have been given this legacy of faith, and, and, and I challenge those of you who are parents or, or who will be parents that we parent in such a way that if Paul was writing about our child, he could write this verse about our child. The unfeigned faith that was in Eric Walsh that has now been passed down to his child. A legacy of faith has been given. But Paul goes on and he looks, look at verse 6. He says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. If you are going to survive in the last days, you will not be able to survive the last days living your life out of fear. Fear is a very poor motivator. Studies are pretty well documented that just scaring people with tar blackened lungs from cigarettes are not enough to help people to be motivated to quit smoking. Fear only lasts for a little while. And in fact, when you really read the scriptures carefully, fear is actually the opposite of love because perfect love does what? It casts out all fear. The Christian ought not operate out of fear. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and your relationship, you live, one, afraid that every day when you wake up, you're going to wake up and mess up and make mistakes. If you're operating out of fear, something's wrong with your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because God has not given you a spirit of fear. The devil wants you to be afraid. The devil wants you to be afraid that you won't make it. Roger Minot's last book, I'm a big fan of Roger Minot's. When I read A Trip into the Supernatural, it, I have to admit it, it, it was a little hard going to sleep that night, but <laughs> see, I'm just being honest. Some of you won't admit that. I'll just admit it for you. But I read his book, Beware of Angels. And there's a powerful part in the book where one of the women who have come back to God and, and, and these women had been dealing with demons. I won't get into the story. I don't have time, but they'd been dealing with some demon issues. And, and, and one of the women who had come back to God says, you know, uh, Roger Manoa, as he's interviewing her in prison, you know, the only time the demons come back is when I question, watch this, when I question whether or not God has actually forgiven me for what I've done. Steps to Christ, Ellen White warns against this idea that when you have, when you have, when you have repented and turned your sins over, it is, a, it is a spirit of fear 
to go back and, and wonder if God has forgiven you because now you begin to question the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it, is, it, is, it, it actually infuses powers into the enemy against you. Let me tell you something. Most of you put bleach in a washing machine, a little bit of Tide detergent. You don't go back and check halfway through the cycle if the clothes is actually getting clean. You've got more faith in Clorox and Tide than you do in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me warn you that you will live a trapped, weakened life if, if you live your spiritual experience afraid of God. We always read John 3.16, and I love John 3.16, but John 3.17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through his Son might be what? Let me tell you something. I don't doubt because I have a stronger belief in Christ's ability to save me than in the devil's ability to take me. And it manifests. Look at the verse. Look at the verse. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. Christians ought to function out of power. Not pride, but power. Let me tell you something. I, I, I'm going to get into this tomorrow night a little bit more, but I'm on national committees. And I went to a recent meeting, a national meeting, and they, had, they brought in a, a, a high-ranking Catholic priest to represent the bishops. And, and they brought in people from, that worked for Focus on the Family and all these different uh, uh, um, kind of right-wing ideologic areas, even though I found out the Catholic priest, ironically, was so far left, I couldn't find him. And as I'm sitting there and I'm hearing what the U.S. government, I'll, I'll get into it a little more tomorrow night, is planning to do in the era of, of education around sex and sexuality, I begin to pray and ask God, not that I'd be afraid now to speak up because I'm in the presence of people who are, who are of influence, or, or dignitaries who, who run divisions at the Centers for Disease Control. But I say, Lord, like Daniel now, like Joseph now, let me speak for the people of America who don't know that demonic forces are at work to change the policies of this great nation. The Christian doesn't function out of timidity and fear. It's times when you've got to stand up and say right is right and wrong is wrong. There's way too many chickens in the church. Too many mamby-pamby, yellow-bellied cowards running around in the church. Anything, well, you don't want to offend anybody. You think you can go to a Muslim school and do some of the stuff we allow to happen in our schools? We're afraid of everybody now. And you know what happens when you're afraid of everybody? Nobody respects you. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm waiting tomorrow night for that. But. <laughs> but the scripture said he's given us power and of love. The church ought to function out of love. I was talking to a group of pastors. We, we, we meet together. And we play basketball in Southern California. And we were talking. And I said, you know, we, we, we want to do community service. And we should do community service. But I tell you what, we ought to do community service simply because we love the community. We, we, there ought to be no strings attached. We ought not do community service and expect 
by default, people are going to be baptized into the church. In other words, we ought to feed people who are hungry in our communities simply because they're hungry and we love them. Because we may be planting a seed that doesn't generate or germinate for, 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 for 10 or 15 years. But we ought to function out of love for the people around us. Paul is warning us, as he's warning Timothy, that fear isn't how you function, love is how you function. But the last thing he says in verse 7 is powerful. The last thing he says is powerful. He says, God has not given us the spirit of fear. He says, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. As a physician, one of the things I found interesting is how many people would come to me when I used to work at Urgent Care. I don't work there anymore. I miss it. Still on, still on faculty there. But, and people would come in, and their only complaint would be they're anxious. They're afraid. I mean, you'd see people come in, and they were afraid of both options. Now, let me explain that. Young ladies would come in, and they would want me to medicate them because they were afraid to get married. But they were also afraid to stay single. There are people who are afraid to take the job and afraid to stay unemployed. We live in a society of fear. Anxiety disorders have taken over and people come in and they ask for SSRIs, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, the most famous of which is Prozac. And they figure if you write them a prescription for the magic pill, <coughs> all of their problems will go away. And you know what I used to do? I used to love doing this. And that's why I loved working at Loma Linda. Because I'd get my prescription pad, I'd get a copy of the book Steps to Christ, and I would write on the prescription pad, I said, I'm going to write you a better medicine than Prozac. And I would write 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. I want you to take this TID, which means three times a day. And, 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 and you don't have to take it with food. In fact, you're better off fasting when you take this medicine. A sound mind is what we need. But yet we live in a time when people are so addicted to substances and, 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 and media and, and pornography and, and everything else. And I, and I do studies where I talk about it. And I got the idea from one of our great preaching leaders, Doug Batchelor, uh, about the body as, as, as the temple. And, and when I went into it as a physician, I looked at the frontal lobe of the brain. And, and the human brain is 33% frontal lobe. And when I looked at it, if you, if you line up the sanctuary and you match it up to the body, the frontal lobe, the reasoning part of your brain, right here behind your forehead bone, is like the most holy place. This is where all of the most complex reasoning, where, where GABA, dopamine, acetylcholine, uh, adrenaline, where all of these neurochemicals are released in your brain, these are what make you have your being, your sensibilities, make you think. If, if the frontal lobe of your brain, where cocaine and alcohol and caffeine and nicotine all have their effect, oh, don't miss this. If this is where all of them have their effect, in fact, what you do when, when people become addicts and get on these substances as mild as caffeine is considered to be or as harsh as cocaine is considered to be, what you actually do is block what the most holy place is made for, which is for the Shekinah glory of God to fall on. 
The reason the devil wants the world addicted to substances and pornography and movies and music and all the rest of the addictive behaviors, gambling, is because if your mind is occupied, the part of your brain where the Holy Spirit is supposed to plug in, and that's why the Bible says the love of Christ constraineth us because GABA is one of those chemicals in your brain that when it is working right, it literally helps you to behave properly. It is a constraining element. But alcohol and marijuana both block the release of GABA. So the frontal lobe, the sanctuary uh, model being used, like the holy place in the same, most holy place in the sanctuary, if you're on that stuff, you block out. The effects of the living God in your life. Hence the scripture says, the drunk will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because you can't have a sound mind. Yet, our young people, more and more of them are getting caught up. And you know, the devil's slick. He couldn't get some of us with, with, with marijuana. Couldn't get some of us with alcohol, but he created these lattes and caffeine-filled beverages. And, you know, you start studying and, and you, you need to stay awake at night, so you, you break out some Mountain Dew. Some of y'all laughing. What a guilty-looking laugh there, bro. <laughs> and I understand. I've been a student. I understand the, the, the stresses, but understand that the devil just wants an end. A sound mind. Every one of our churches should have a way for people who are addicted to receive the counseling and the help they need to get off of whatever substance or behavior is addicting them. Our churches are incomplete in their ministry if we don't have that. Because if you bring people in with their addictions, the chemical addictions will leave a door open for the devil to continually get to them. Paul says in verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Let me tell you that Paul was not afraid. He was okay with being a prisoner. He understood the importance of suffering for God. In fact, when you jump to chapter 2, and I'm going to jump down to verse 3 of chapter 2 for time's sake. Chapter 2 and verse 3 of 2 Timothy, Paul, as he's in this dungeon writing this letter to Timothy, he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He said, man, you got to be able to take some licks if you're going to be a soldier. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Let me tell you something. When you join the church, now let me, let, let, me, let me couch this just right. I think it's important that the church has social aspects to it. I think it's important that we have potlucks and fellowships and, 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 and other things like that. I think that's critical because it's important that we don't need, we can find what we need in the church and, not, and we don't have to go out in the world looking for it. 
So I think those things are important, that things like GYC, when, we have our, when you have your free time and I, and I walk and I see you guys sitting at tables and talk, that's important. But understand, you didn't join a potluck club when you joined the church. I know some folk, they live for the potluck. I know folk that they, they, in California, there's so many wonderful, beautiful, different ethnicities. You can, you can just do a rotation. Korean church this week, Korean potluck. Filipino church next week, Filipino potluck. Spanish church the next week, Spanish potluck. But you didn't join a potluck club. You joined an army. You joined the army of the living God. <clears throat> and it's important as soldiers in the army of the living God that we understand that this earth is not our home. I had a friend who was in Iraq and he was in Saddam Hussein's palace emailing me a few years back. He was telling me how the toilets were gold encrusted and all of the fancy things that were in there. Thank you. And he said, one of the things that he learned in combat, when he's in active combat, is that when you're out there actually fighting, I mean, you're fighting, it's a terrible thing to think about home while you're fighting. While you're fighting, your mind has to only be on the fight. Paul says to Timothy, look, be careful that you don't make the earth your home. Be careful that your thoughts aren't here. You're not more concerned with moving up the corporate ladder. More concerned with how good looking your spouse is. Somebody ought to say amen. Because, you know, some of us, we do these genetic surveys of individuals to figure out how good, good looking our children are going to be. When you're a soldier in the army of God, the earth is not what captures you. Let me tell you something. After burying relatives for the last four or five years in a row, I can tell you at every funeral, my vow as the casket is dropped into the hole is that, Lord God, remind me on a daily basis. There's nothing in this earth that could be offered me that replaces what God has in store for me. Because you won't be a good soldier if this is your home. Let me jump down to verse 15 of chapter 2, where Paul says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says, But shun, uh, shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase unto more ungodliness. It sounds like Paul knew what the top 40 would look like in 2010 at the end of the year. The music of this world today literally is almost described here. It is literally profane and vain. Everybody bragging about what they have and what they can get, who they are and how much of a rock star they are. But Paul says, don't do that. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Everything you do, you're studying. Did you know that? Every television program you watch, every movie, every book you read, everything you do, you are constantly and always studying. The human brain is so complex that everything we take in is permanently filed and stored. 
And some people ask, well, why can't I get it back when I want to take a test? Well, usually the reason people can't retrieve information for a test is they store too much other junk in front of the stuff they need to get to. So it's not enough to come to church once a week and be filled up and then go back and be filled up with the world the other six and a half days of the week. You won't ever be able to get to the stuff you need to get to when you need to get to it. He says, study to show yourself approved, not to men, but to God. He says in verse 20, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. The great house is the church. And I warn people sometimes, when you come to church, you expect that everybody in church is going to be kind and loving and very Christian. Paul is warning Timothy, and he's warning us, that in church there are people who are made out of gold and silver spiritually. But in church there are also people who are made out of wood and of clay. In fact, there are people who are made out of Tupperware and styrofoam in some churches. And what happens is those people will say one wrong word to you. And you know what happens? People run away from church. Don't be so gullible. Understand that the devil is going to send his people to church as well. But I like what Paul does here for Timothy because Paul even says even the people who are in church for the wrong reason can be saved. Watch this. <clears throat> he says in verse 24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Watch verse 26, is powerful. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. The good soldier is a specialist in reconnaissance. The good soldier specializes in finding those that have drifted away from God, who have given up on God. The good soldier goes on reconnaissance missions and gets back for God what's been lost. You see, some of us, we've been so insulated. We don't want to go out. And I mean, and sometimes you have to stay away. If it's your old past... In a place you used to be, maybe you ought not be the one that goes back. But don't be afraid of somebody else to go, somebody else to go get your cousins. Don't be afraid of somebody else to go get your, your, your old friends from high school. Don't be afraid to go back. We are in a reconnaissance state of mind. We are looking for people who can be redeemed. Why? Because we have been redeemed. And guess what? If God can redeem a wretch like me, I have full confidence that there is nothing on this planet, no one on this planet, that cannot be redeemed. The good soldier is on a reconnaissance mission. And the good soldier loves to see when the devil had someone. And God is able to bring them back to him. The story is told of an earthquake that happened in Armenia. A father was taking his son to school one day. And as the father is taking his son to school, 
He drops the young boy at the front of the elementary school. The father normally cannot get back in time to pick up his son. So this particular day, the young boy says, Daddy, promise me. Promise me that you'll be back to get me today after school. The young boy's name was Armand. The father says, Armand, I promise I will be back to get you. And the father arrives at his factory and begins to work. The ground begins to sway and the building begins to sway and the factory is damaged. The father runs outside. He looks around and most of his co-workers are okay, but as he begins to look around the city, as the earthquake begins to settle down, he sees that there is serious damage to much of the buildings around. Father decides that he needs to go back to the school and look for his son to see what happened. He begins to run back across town over the rubble to the school. When he gets to the school, parents have already begun to gather around the building where it once stood, now a pile of rubble. Parents are weeping, crying. This father steps back and looks around for landmarks, whatever is left, and figures out where his son's classroom would have been and climbs up to the top of the rubble and gets to the top and begins to take one piece of rubble at a time and throw it aside. Parents yell out, what are you doing up there? Are you crazy? They're all dead. Come down. Father doesn't pay them any mind. He just continues tossing it aside. Firemen, the police come. Firemen say, it's not safe. Get down. He ignores them and just keeps tossing the rubble aside. Twelve hours later, he's still there. Sixteen hours later, he's still there. Twenty-four hours later, he's still there. Hands now bloody from the twisted metal and, and the sharp rubble, but he keeps throwing it aside. Thirty-six hours later, the father is there, spent, hungry, thirsty, working to remove the rubble. In the 36th hour, when all hope would seem to have been lost, he picks up a piece of rubble and tosses it to the side and sees a dark cavern. Rails his head back and puts his mouth, hand to his mouth, and he shouts down into the hole, Armand! Armand! A small voice from inside the dark pit cries back out, Yes, Daddy! Father says, Armand, are you okay? Armand says, yes, daddy. We're hungry. Some of us have been injured, daddy, but we're here and we're all right. The room fell around us, daddy. His father says, give me a hand, son. Let me pull you out. He says, no, daddy. I'm going to help my friends get out first. Some of them are hurt because I told my friends, don't worry. Ha, my daddy's coming back to get me. Let me tell you, young people, your daddy's coming back to get you.
I know this world is all messed up. And I know it seems like there's no hope sometimes. But I promise you, our daddy is coming back to get us. If we just draw near to him, he will draw near to us. As the appeal song is sung, you want to come down front and give your life to Jesus Christ, rededicate your life. Just join me down front. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for those who have moved out of their seats and come down front. Father God, draw us nearer to you. Lord, we just appreciate the fact that this world won't last much longer. We appreciate the fact that our daddy's coming to get us. Help us to be good soldiers, Father God. Help us to be loving and kind, while at the same time, Lord, powerful and serious. Father God, I just ask that you pour out a blessing on those who have come down front. Seal us, Father God, with your Holy Spirit, that we would be an army fit to serve the King of the universe. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen. This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it, and keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.